This is an ABC podcast. Hello, I'm James Carlton. Welcome to God Forbid. Since Australia became a nation in 1901, all our prime ministers have been either Christian or non-religious. Anglicans dominate the list, then Catholics, then Presbyterians, and there's a Methodist. But as we go to the polls, likely in May, Australians will have their say on the first ever Pentecostal Prime Minister. Who could forget Scott Morrison's famous victory speech after his upset win at the last election? He said, I've always believed in miracles. Mr Morrison is a devoted member of the Horizon Church in Sydney's Sutherland Shire, his electorate, a so-called megachurch. But apart from large crowds and loud modern music... How much do we know about his faith and Pentecostalism generally? The truth is, it's as diverse and as complex as any branch of Christianity, and it's growing much faster than our understanding of it. Would it surprise you to know that the first Pentecostal church was established by an African-American, the son of a freed slave, or that of Australia's first two Pentecostal churches, one was created by Indigenous people, and Aboriginal-led Pentecostal churches are still here, the other was set up by a woman. Today, there are 600 million so-called post-denominational, charismatic or Pentecostal Christians. And by 2050, it's expected to hit 1 billion people. The implications are huge. And our expert panel will reveal this complex mosaic, which goes far beyond Pentecostalism's pejorative stereotype of happy clappy. So let's meet them. Elle Hardy is an Australian-born journalist based in the US. She's written for The Times, GQ, Foreign Policy, Vice, many, many more. And she's back in Australia with her new book, Beyond Belief, How Pentecostal Christianity is Taking Over the World. Elle Hardy, welcome home and to God forbid. Thank you for having me. Also with us, Dr Mark Jennings. He was Pentecostal but left the movement for the campus. He's a sociologist by training, senior lecturer in religious studies at Perth's Wollaston Theological College, affiliated with the University of Divinity, though at the moment he joins us from Mandurah in WA. Mark Jennings, welcome to God Forbid. Hi there. It's It's good to be here. And Reverend Jacqueline Gray is not just a Pentecostal Christian, but a scholar and a theologian. In fact, one of the country's foremost experts on the topic. She's Professor of Biblical Studies at Alpha Crucis College. Four books, another to come. She's the former president of the Society for Pentecostal Studies and a research fellow at the University of South Africa. But in the Blue Mountains is where she is right now, west of Sydney. Jackie, Jacqueline Gray, welcome to God Forbid. Thank you. It's great to be here. Well, let's start with Elle Hardy. Elle, you visited 12 countries and eight American states to research this book. It's a, a global story of prophets in both forms of the word, miracles, money and power. Did you have any idea of what awaited you as a journalist when you started this project? Not really, no. Uh, just the, the breadth, uh, depth and diversity of, of the movement is it is bigger than most people can imagine. And, and you know, the point of writing the book was that uh, I think that so many people aren't aware of, of just how big Pentecostalism is. I, I think it's fair to say that that it probably is the dominant expression of Christianity in the world today. And and that's it, it looks very different in many different places, but, but that's very significant. Has your view of Pentecostal Christianity changed over the course of your journey? I mean, look, I tried to go in with a with a pretty open mind. I, I, I'm agnostic myself. Um, 
Yeah, look, it, it certainly did just in understanding, I think, a lot of the social and economic factors and, and the real material things that I think are behind a lot of the uptake in the movement. The faith is undoubted, but, you know, in, in a lot of the world that that faith is, is, is much richer and more profound than it is, say, in the West. Um, but, but just, you know, you can sort of see the patterns happening over and over again, whether it's Nigeria, Brazil, North Korean refugees, you know, the reasons that people are joining churches, they're moving to huge cities and feeling alienated and losing their sense of community. They are, you know, often, uh, you know, don't have healthcare or basic services and, and whether it's, it's miracles or, or, a church, you know, sort of parallel in state institutions that churches are running, you know, might be just a basic healthcare care clinic, but it's often better than, than what the state's giving you. These sorts of factors are, are really, really important. And, and as I said, I think that they're really worth being understood. Let's turn to Dr. Mark Jennings. Mark, you grew up in a devout Pentecostal family in Perth. So how was your childhood different to others? Uh, look, some of my first memories were from a uh, Pentecostal church. It, it was something that I got used to quite quickly, but um, back then, it would have been the early 80s, it was quite a out-there kind of uh, spirituality. I guess maybe your listeners are thinking, well, what on, what on earth is it now? But, but back then, it was like, uh, you know, we, we sort of characterised it as swinging from the chandeliers wasn't so much a lot of speaking in tongues there was a lot of shouting in tongues and I was I was a, I was a kid so the, I remember that my first memories of that were quite scary but I got used to it quite quickly and I guess that kind of familiarity or comfort with these kinds of phenomena and and the ideas of the supernatural some of the ideas of um, heaven and hell and the end times and and all, all of these sorts of ideas these were the worldview that that I accepted as, you know, normal. So that's my whole frame of reference. But you now identify as an Anglican Christian, Mark. Why did you leave? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, and it wasn't that long ago that I left, although I've sort of been half in and half out a little bit for a while. In the end, uh, one of the reasons I left was I was finding myself uncomfortable with the moral conservatism I've started um, researching LGBTQ plus experiences of Pentecostal charismatic Christianity in Australia. And, you know, that that continues to be a barrier that just can't really be crossed, um, at least in public, for, for a lot of Pentecostal charismatic Christians and the churches. So, yes, I think in the end I became um, increasingly uncomfortable I couldn't keep uh, showing up and, and playing bass um, up the front in the worship band, which is what the worst guitarist in, in the church does um, anymore. And, uh, yes, I, I found something of a, a home in Anglicanism here in the Diocese of Perth. Mm, but you put the bass away. In fact, this year you've uh, got a book to be published. It's called Happy LGBTQ Plus Experiences of Australian Pentecostal Charismatic Christianity. So to Reverend Professor Jackie Gray now, tell me about your childhood because your family wasn't always Pentecostal or even Christian at all. That's right. So when I was a, a young child, my uh, parents believed in God but didn't attend church and it was actually 
uh, I was about five or six years old when uh, they started attending. It was actually a charismatic uniting church. So I grew up uh, in that in that environment uh, as a teenager. Uh, I was really challenged. Did I want this to be my faith or was it just my parents' faith? And I made a decision that uh, it was, was my faith to, to follow Christ. Uh, when I moved out of, of home, began to uh, attend a Pentecostal church, part of the Pentecostal community. Well, a question that is much more difficult to answer than it might seem, what is Pentecostalism? It's a very difficult question to answer because for some people it, it's about uh, the particular doctrine within Christianity of, of speaking in tongues. But I think most scholars would actually define it as a reforming movement. When we look at the Australian uh, situation, for example, uh, it began as a prayer meeting amongst some women in uh, a Methodist church uh, that ended up then forming their own organization, uh, as you noted, uh, plant the first church led by a woman, uh, Sarah Lancaster, uh, in Melbourne and growing from there, very grassroots. And so that's also one of the challenges with Pentecostalism. We, we don't have a pope, uh, you know, we don't have someone who speaks on behalf of all Pentecostals. And so uh, there's such rich diversity and it's hard to capture that. For, for some people, they view it as almost a, a a denomination of, of Christianity, and it certainly has become somewhat that way in more recent decades. But from the outset, groups that were seeking to uh, have a greater experience of God, people in, in the early 1900s or even late 1800s uh, were reading the Bible and, and seeking similar experiences, and they uh, wanted to encounter God uh, within their own church denomination. But so many were rejected from their, their church groups, and so they began to form their own communities. And yet there are many Pentecostals that still do remain Catholic, Anglican, or Baptist. And so there's such a rich diversity of what it, what it is to be Pentecostal. And Mark Jennings, of the world's two billion Christians, what, 600 million of them Pentecostals, and that number's growing fast, you say it's more, it's as much a movement uh, as a religion, like uh, the trade union movement and others. Yeah, as Professor Gray was saying, it's so diverse that it, it's difficult to call it one thing. I mean, uh, Professor Gray's colleague, um, Professor Mark Hutchison at Alpha Crucis, he was the one who had this uh, this phrase that it never was one thing and it still isn't. It's Pentecostalisms. And Mark, when you refer to charismatic Christianity, what does that mean? Uh, yeah, I wish I had simple answers for any of these questions, but spiritual gifts, the charismata in Greek, hence, hence the name, charismatic movement, specifically things like speaking in tongues, divine healing. It, it really refers to the charismata, which is the spiritual gifts. Well, on our end, it is God forbid. I'm James Carlton. We're with Dr. Mark Jennings, Reverend Professor Jacqueline Gray and El Hardy. Up next, we discuss Australia's most famous Pentecostal Christian, Prime Minister Scott Morrison. Ever since Scott Morrison took office back in 2018, there's been an overt public interest in his faith. He only actually became Pentecostal in his 30s, though Scott Morrison says he, quote, gave his life to the Lord at a boys' brigade camp when he was 12. 
His predecessors, including Tony Abbott, Malcolm Turnbull and Kevin Rudd, all identify as Christian too, but none with the attention afforded to the incumbent. Journalist Greg Sheridan has spoken at length to Scott Morrison about his faith and to Iron's Andrew West, who asked if Scott Morrison feels unfairly scrutinised or criticised because of his Pentecostalism. Look, I think he does sometimes, but he also recognises that there's great general acceptance in Australia of people, that if you're not doing something terrible, people are pretty easygoing about who you are. But occasionally the attacks on his belief are a bit silly and he gets a little bit annoyed about that. But I don't think it's made him absurdly defensive or anything. He doesn't try to dodge who he is, nor does he try to ram it down anyone's throat, nor does he claim any sort of divine warrant. You know, I interviewed Kim Beasley for a previous book. He said to me, you know, my politics is not my faith and disagreeing with me about politics is not a sin. I think Scott Morrison would have a similar view. This is the fascination, though, Greg, that has evolved, at least among, if you like, the commentariat with Scott Morrison's Pentecostal faith, because he is the first Pentecostal leader of a major developed country. Why does that mark him out? I mean, what is so different about at least the expression of Pentecostalism that's made this a source of some controversy? Well, Andrew, you're absolutely right. It is the Pentecostal element of his religious identity, which is fascinates people. This is my second book about Christianity, and I try to write from what C.S. Lewis used to call the mere Christianity consensus. That is to say, the 99% that most mainstream Christian denominations agree, you know, any Christian who can sign up to the Apostles' Creed, so that includes evangelical Protestants, Pentecostals, uh, Eastern Orthodox, and so on. And the Pentecostals are distinctive in that group. I have looked at them pretty closely, and I've known them for many, many years. They're distinctive culturally. Doctrinally, they're not that distinctive. They have an emphasis on the gifts of the Holy Spirit, but most Christians believe in the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Because in their modern guise, they're quite a recent movement, they've always been contemporary and they have a very contemporary cultural style. So they love rock and roll music. They meet in big halls. One thing I like about them is they're not embarrassed about their Christianity. They sing it out loud. But within our society, which is so sceptical and so sort of post-Christian and in a sense even post-modern and so on, this kind of open, freely, almost naive faith is culturally unusual. That's Greg Sheridan speaking with Andrew West on RN's The Religion and Ethics Report. Check out a link on the God Forbid website to find the full conversation. Well, El Hardy... You're back in Australia. Scott Morrison's Pentecostalism may be culturally unusual in Australia, but you say Scott Morrison himself is an unusual or or at least atypical Pentecostal. Why? Well, looking globally, and and even if you if you looked in Australia, the the median Pentecostal is is probably a a young Brazilian or Nigerian uh, woman, uh, probably under twenty five. Um, you know, possibly has some some young kids. Um, wants to make a better life for herself, her family, her community, probably has an interest in social justice, not in the politically charged sense that we use it now, but, you know, wants to do a bit of good um, through her church often as well as as well as practising her faith there. 
And, and that's really the story we're seeing over and over again. There's a really misguided belief in Australia that a Pentecostal or a Hillsonger looks like Scott Morrison. It's so far from it. I, I just popped into the local one in inner Sydney near me the other night. And, you know, I felt like I was one of the few people in the room of, of probably 500 people that was over 25. Um, it, it's just such a different thing. And it's really what it's really giving young people is, is, is a way to be enthusiastic about their faith, but also it shows them that they can be a Christian Pentecostal person in, in the secular world. You know, they, they go there to feel energised and feel good about themselves. Um, you know, they, they listen, the music's good, the production's credible. And, yeah, and then they can kind of get on with their day. They feel uplifted, motivated and inspired. And I think that is really one of the key driving forces behind the movement, certainly in Australia and, and around the world. And Jackie Gray, we've seen the Prime Minister on TV sing and pray, standing up with his uh, eyes closed, hands raised in the air. He considers the blessing of his daughters as evidence of the Holy Spirit. He told the congregation he received a direct message from God the week before the election. Uh, he warns social media can be a weapon of the evil one, meaning the devil. These are things he said to congregations. Does that make him a typical Pentecostal but a most atypical Australian Prime Minister? I guess it probably does. So certainly within Pentecostalism, um, we are very practical orientated. I think Elle picked up on, on that really well. So people will say uh, preachers in Pentecostal churches don't preach to Sunday, they preach to Monday. So to how, li- how to live out your faith. And part of that includes the well-being of the family and uh, Scott. Morrison is is very um, loving, a loving father. Uh, we see that, uh, I guess, the the broader family life that he seems to represent on on social media. Pentecostals are also very spiritually aware, uh, and so you will hear at different times uh, references to uh, the, the the spiritual uh, world and 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 even spiritual battle uh, where there is evil uh, in the world. Uh, for Christians, they want to uh, be able to, I guess, resist that and to see instead good and love uh, manifest through their activity and they'll pray for people, which again is a spiritual activity. And and if that is the behaviour that Scott Morrison uh, is, is, is doing, then he would be very typical Pentecostal. And Mark Jennings, Scott Morrison insists his faith does not dictate his policies and decisions. He says, quote, the Bible is not a policy handbook. Given most Australian prime ministers have identified as Christian, and apart from the sectarianism, most weren't judged on that basis, uh, does he have a point? Does he have reason to be frustrated if he is painted as abnormal or different or unusual in an, in an inappropriate way, I guess? Uh, yeah, look, I think what um, Greg Sheridan was saying is probably fair enough that maybe he does get a bit annoyed at some caricatures of himself and his his faith. As you as you just said, you know, we've had many prime ministers of faith and they haven't enjoyed or endured the same kind of scrutiny of that faith. Particularly um James Boyce has written a couple of things really starting to get to the to the to like a, a fever's pitch about, you know, we we really need to know what Morrison believes because it, it could affect his policy in the way that that he governs and it sort of it almost sounds like Gilead is imminent the way that that uh, some of the journalists talk about his faith. If we want to look for a key to understand Morrison's approach to policy, that's in neoliberalism more so than 
than Pentecostalism, but they are they can be as as any kind of faith can be. Um, Pentecostalism and neoliberalism can be bedfellows that they they interact well with each other. You're talking about when Scott Morrison says things like Australians who have a go get a go, whereas perhaps a, an alternate Christian interpretation might be uh, blessed are the poor. Precisely so. Let uh, let justice flow down like a river. I was thinking about something Ms Hardy was saying about how some of these Pentecostal churches uh, are really good at providing services and provide them at a higher quality and level than some of the state services. And I think for a lot of kind of neoliberal worldviews, uh, that would be ideal for kind of private providers, churches, to be doing that kind of stuff rather than the state, whereas I think in a previous time we, we we understood you know we pay taxes there's and and that goes towards social safety nets for those who who for for whatever reason find themselves unemployed or sick and you know we kind of socialize uh risk rather than you know privatize and responsibilize risk and and sort of make it risk everybody every individual's business so i think when i when i hear those who have a go get a go i hear that that responsabilization idea that this is really about you as an individual kind of the sort of thing that um the late margaret thatcher would say and you know, that there is no such thing as society there's individuals and there are families so so that's really the the unit rather than the state and Dale, as we heard from mark and jackie earlier if pentecostals live out their faith uh, in a secular world you know the church service flows into the monday monday's a sitting day in parliament the critics of pentecostalism have something to fear about a prime minister who is a, a practicing pentecostal or no more than say any other religious or denominational background Look, that's, uh, I think that's always something that it, it depends how you see it uh, play out. Remembering, of course, that you're back from America where he looks downright mild. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, Trump was the, the great figurehead of Pentecostals. You know, there's so much of Pentecostal faith that really aligns well with this sort of populist often right-wing shift in politics that we're seeing around the world. Um, I think it was 29% of white evangelicals thought that Trump was anointed by God. 53% of Pentecostals agreed. So, so that was how much more he was sort of speaking um, to, to a lot of Pentecostal issues in the United States. And in Australia, we have Pentecostals who are a member of the Love Makes Away campaign, which is the pro-refugee group. So there are Pentecostal pro-refugee people who take strong exception to uh, Scott Morrison as immigration minister. Well, I, I, yeah, I have no doubt. I mean, Pentecostalism has always been the faith of the marginalised, of minorities, um, and, and, you know, it, it still is now. So, um, I mean say someone like, you know, Hillsong tend, tends to almost be a standard for Pentecostalism in Australia. Um, and, you know, there's if, if you go out to, to one of those churches, you, you'll understand why they're actually, they don't tend to be too political in Australia because they know that they don't really want to alienate their parishioners because they are so diverse. And, and yeah, put, putting a lot in with one political party just doesn't really make sense. Also in Australia, the, um, structurally and culturally, there's just no real reason for, for Morrison to really court um, an evangelical or Pentecostal vote. I mean, you know, it's relatively tiny. I think at most 2% of Australians would be 
are, are practicing Pentecostals, um, and there just isn't the incentives. But but certainly in places like uh, Brazil, America, South Africa, and all sorts of states in the world that, that you know we might call failed states. Pentecostal churches are stepping in and, and giving the services that, as I said, but as Mark was very right to point out, they're also providing a real incentive for states to be failed. And I think that, that you do have to look at both sides of, of those issues coming together and see why, you know, people like Trump and, and Bolsonaro really will, you know, slash services and, and whatnot and just say that you've, you know, you've got to take care of yourself or join a church who will. Obviously, we might see some echoes of that in sort of some of Morrison's policies himself, but I don't see how he would be any different to say uh, Prime Minister Peter Dutton. His policies to me seem much more informed by his membership of the Liberal Party than of his Pentecostal faith. Uh, on our end, it is God forbid we're talking about Pentecostalism and El mentioned Hillsong Church. We'll look at that in particular up next. Without a doubt, the most well-known Pentecostal church today is Hillsong, and also without a doubt, the megachurch has received its fair share of criticism during its time in the public eye. Only days ago, Hillsong founder Brian Houston stepped down as global leader of the church while he defends a criminal charge, alleging he covered up his father's alleged child sexual abuse in a statement on the Hillsong website. He says he intends to vigorously defend the charge. As for Hillsong, what began in the 80s as a small church in Sydney's northwest has today exploded into a global phenomenon in 30 countries across six continents. How can this be achieved when so many pews are empty in traditional Christian churches, in Australia at least? Well, Dr Tanya Riches is a senior lecturer in theology at Hillsong College in Sydney. She's also a singer-songwriter who made it into the charts for Christian music, which is no small thing in America. She told RN's Meredith Lake what you'd see if you walked through the doors of Hillsong. I think if you were to turn up to the Hills campus, you might be overwhelmed a little bit at the size of the building as you're coming in. Um, it's a large church, but I think when you get in, you realise it's a friendly church and it's very diverse. Um, there are people all different ages, probably all different ethnicities. It's fun. It's a short service. And yeah, it's just really opening the Bible, uh, a lifestyle message that might be really relevant to Sydney. A, li a lifestyle uh, like message, in, did you say? Well, I think, you know, that's, it's probably like thinking about how do we apply the Bible to today? And, you know, for people who might run a small business out in the hills or who might work in a corporate something in the city, just ordinary Sydney people. And so how do you make this message of Jesus really relevant, you really think, okay, well, yeah, that's a message for me, something that we'd say the Spirit has breathed on that you think, okay, that's, yeah, my takeaway for today. What are some of the distinctives that you observe? Yeah. Well, sure, I think, you know, if you were to ask anyone, any Pentecostal globally or any scholar of Pentecostalism globally, they would say worship um, and music have been a really big contribution of the Australian church. Uh, so that's through really significant figures like Darlene Check and then now, um, you know, not numerous people at Hillsong. So um, it's almost too many to name. You feel like I might miss some of the really key players. But, yeah, that's been a really important thing and I, I think that brings a really beautiful aspect of the faith, like being able to sing your faith um, and to have theology that is woven together in lyrics as opposed to in propositional truths. 
that's something that, you know, I explore as a theologian and as something that I really enjoy. The music thing has been quite significant and personal for you in your yeah, sure. connection with the church. And, and it's true, isn't it, that for many Australians, Pentecostalism is associated with a sound yeah. more than anything else. Yeah. Tell me about writing your song, the <laughs> one you wrote as a teenager, Jesus, What a Beautiful Name. What is it that you were trying to express or capture? So as a teenager, kind of, you know, the end of high school where you're kind of trying to work out who am I, what do I, who, how do I fit in these cliques? Which one am I? Am I part of like the emo group? Or the, I mean, it probably that sounds really, you know, I guess it can sound really juvenile, but, I, you know, when you are a teenager and thinking that through and, but then realising there's this huge creator God um, and being able to access who God is through the Bible and to be able to understand Jesus was the expression of that. That's really what I wanted to put into words. And as I've sung that song around the the world, really, as someone who's getting older, and every time I sing it, you know, this is a 20-year-old song. Like, not everybody remembers it now, you know. Um, yeah, so I think, you know, it's meant more to me as I've grown older and looked at, you know, who Jesus is and this story that, you know, is incredibly poignant for me as a Christian. Dr Tanya Richards speaking with Meredith Lake for RN Soul Search. We'll put a link to the full conversation on our website at God Forbid. Well, Jackie Gray, music has always been a uniter and a divider in Christian history. Uh, tell me about that. And I guess Pentecostal pop music, like we've just heard about from Hillsong, is just the latest chapter in that story. Definitely. So one thing that Pentecostalism is known for globally is is the music and and is the worship and uh, it's it's actually very I guess symbolic of what Pentecostalism is which is to be very practical to be very relevant and to be contemporary uh, and so the the contemporary style of the the music and the I guess the um, catchy tunes the uh, it, it's continually um, evolving as music evolves as well and so it, it's it's in touch with uh, the I guess new forms and new definitions of, of, of music and it, of course it's controversial because there's uh, different expressions of the church that um, uh, ridicule uh, the approach uh, often ridiculing the, the lyrics uh, I've heard various songs we sing in Pentecostal church described as um, boyfriend-girlfriend songs as though, you know, it's just sort of a little love song dedication tune. And, you know, perhaps there are some uh, valid critiques to that. But uh, I think one of the things that it does do is is express the, I guess, the, the emotive part of our person as people and as believers uh, and um, really taps into that element of it. And that, of course, is really a part of the heritage of, of Methodism uh, that Pentecostalism inherited. Because Wesleyan hymns were uh, not always approved of either back in the day. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Now, I, I've heard that some of his songs are based on pub songs from you know, his, his era uh, and you know, put beautiful lyrics to him and his um, John and, and, and Charles Wesley. And so we have this whole heritage, I guess, of being able to sort of contemporize the um, theological views, being able to uh, really capture the attention uh, of particularly young people through through the, the music and um, through the, I guess, that invitation to come worship God together. And at the end of the day, that's what it is about. It's not just about having a you know, trendy music, uh, but it's an invitation to, to worship God. Mark Jennings, you've actually written a book on this, Exaltation, Ecstatic Experience in Pentecostalism and Popular Music. You compare the 
ecstatic experience of the Christian at a live, say, Hillsong uh, concert with the ecstatic experience of, uh, say, a, a dedicated fan of the Rolling Stones or you too at a live concert? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the experience drawing on the French sociologist Emile Durkheim of effervescence and, and exaltation that one can experience in music, and I guess I was I was asking the question as much for myself as as anybody else. Is there something different about this than uh, showing up at a at a Pentecostal charismatic church on a Sunday and you know in a darkened hall and having a, uh, perhaps a similar experience? Is there something distinguishable in those two experiences? What was your conclusion? Yes and no. <laughs> I know academics are often accused of of complicating things, but I think there isn't any difference in the sense that they're kind of both ecstatic experiences that take you ecstatic meaning outside the body that take you outside yourself and connect you with something bigger but yes in the sense that you know if, if something takes place in a church or the music is is connected to christian themes and and lyrics and words then at the kind of hermeneutic or interpretive level you or somebody is going to make the link for you that this is actually an experience of God, whereas you may never have that kind of connection. If you're, you know, um, at um, your your example was U two or or Wolf Mother or you know, London Grammar or something, and you have those kinds of just really euphoric, I guess, ecstatic experiences of, of this music. Um, you may never make the connection. I mean, this is an experience of of the divine, of the religious, because those those lines are not being connected for you, and you're not connecting them. Yourself, so that was, I guess, the, the broadly some of the conclusions I, I had. And El Hardy, does Hillsong music show up in other Christian denominations? Absolutely, I've uh, been aware of even Catholic churches uh, playing it. it. It's huge. I mean, Hillsong is is really known for its music, and it's one of the things that has really transformed the the Pentecostal charismatic faith around the world now is is really bringing it into this modern musical sphere and and yeah it's it's all about that uplift uh, that real joy the outpouring just yeah just having a good time with your mates on a Sunday it doesn't have to be like Reverend Lovejoy in the Simpsons who's putting you all to sleep uh, where you're being bored with a sermon you know this is really a new way of of what Hillsong would call doing church and uh yeah and it's it's much more like a like a concert or a motivational seminar with Tony Robbins or, or something like that, and that is very much part of the appeal. Well, I mean, you put in your book that uh, Madison Square Garden in New York, no less, was filled to the brim by a Hillsong concert on RN. It is, God forbid, we're looking at Pentecostalism with El Hardy, Mark Jennings and Jacqueline Gray. We'll look at it around the world up next. Pentecostalism as we know it today is a relatively modern Christian phenomenon. It began as a fringe movement in the late 19th century in America and it involved faith healing, or the laying on of hands. There's a practice of speaking in tongues where, as we've heard, believers speak and shout seemingly unintelligible sounds believed to be a kind of spiritual language. Missionaries would use these practices to help spread the message to Africa, Europe, South America, China, Korea, all over the world. Alan Anderson is Emeritus Professor of Mission and Pentecostal Studies at the University of Birmingham in the UK. We'll hear from him soon, but first RN's Annabel Quince explains the rapid spread of the faith movement. Pentecostalism became one of the fastest growing religions on the planet. 
As its missionaries spread out across the globe, the flexibility and supernatural nature of Pentecostalism proved incredibly attractive to other cultures. Pentecostalism is inherently flexible to culture, and that includes religious practices. Although this is a somewhat controversial statement to make, I think it's true to say that because Pentecostalism is inherently flexible, people can easily adapt it to their own religious background, their own form of singing, their own form of expression, their own emotional outlets, if you like. And that often is what happens. There is never, certainly in the early years of Pentecostalism, there was never a need for a Pentecostal preacher to go to a theological college and learn how to be a preacher. They would simply believe that when the Spirit came on them, they were able to communicate to other people and go into the world and preach the gospel. That was their belief. So this was a primary way in which cultures were influenced by Pentecostalism. So, for example, there was a belief in the supernatural world in most cultures of the world, except in a rationalistic Western culture. So most parts of the world, including the primarily Catholic Latin America, believed in the supernatural. And because of that, Pentecostals went with a message of the supernatural, including and especially including healing uh, from sickness. And this became a primary way in which they communicated their message. And that's Emeritus Professor Alan Anderson speaking with Annabel Quince on RN's Rear Vision. We'll put a link to the full episode on the God Forbid website. So tell me, El Hardy, you've seen this so-called faith healing up close. Tell me about the town of Redding in California. You call it a company town. So the the large Pentecostal or charismatic church there is is called Bethel. It's very similar to Hillsong, really famed for it for its music. Um, and something like ten percent of the town belongs to the church, and it's very prominent in in the in city hall, as they call it, in and in business and whatnot. Um, it's also very prominent in the hospital system there. And uh, when I was there, the Bethelites, especially the, the kids who go to the, the college, are well known for entering the hospital and, and going to lay hands and, and heal people. They were doing it from the car park when I was there, but, but I certainly found people. And, and that's a, a very common practice. It, it's something that they really believe in, even though it's to all intents and purposes could look like a fairly mainstream church. We also see far more uh, faith healing, you know, the kind of tagline that a lot of people call Pentecostalism is health and wealth. Some of the hospitals have had a fairly open door system for people from from the Bethel Church to go in and, and lay hands on patients. And on Mrs Snyder, who was in a wheelchair, what was that anecdote you revealed? Yes, so there was a, a lady that I spoke to who, who runs a Facebook group. Her late mother uh, was in a wheelchair and was wheeling herself around town one day and some of the students from Bethel came up and asked if they could pray and lay hands on her and she said no and they put their feet under the front of her wheels and did it anyway. And she was obviously, you know, understandably hugely traumatised by that. And and there is a real, uh, these students are going to, you know, a supernatural college and there is a tremendous belief. Um, you know, they're often very young, 1920, and they really are given this belief that 
that they can heal people like this. I, I spoke to a former student who wound up leaving disillusioned, you know, who, who spent a whole day praying with a man for his vision and just not, they both had to put on their glasses at the end of the day and, and just feeling, you know, something he'd been told his entire life that was possible when he finally sort of had the courage and believed that he'd had enough faith to make it happen. It didn't. And it, that's a, a hugely crushing moment. And, and, you know, and then he was started to question, well, you know, why aren't we clearing out hospitals and, and all of this with our powers? And, and there are, especially in America, there, there's quite a strong ex-evangelical movement and a lot of people who do feel quite let down and deceived, I think, by, by these teachings that they grow up with. And, and faith healing seems to be a, a real driver in that. How do you respond to this Jackie Gray? Yeah, um, on the one hand, I'm, I'm really uh, saddened to hear stories such as what Elle has, has been sharing, particularly of the lady that was traumatised by, by that experience. And it is uh, very sad when young and perhaps energetic but unwise people kind of um, go to, to, to share their faith or to impose that on others. And, and uh, it would certainly not be something that, that I would be endorsing. But I, I think the issue of healing, though, and, and, and faith healing uh, is, is a broader one. And it is broader than just Pentecostals. So we see this expectation or this, this sort of theology within the broader Christian movement. So we see that within Catholicism and other parts of the Christian faith that uh, do believe and do practice in praying for healing. And that follows the, I guess, the biblical example of Jesus who uh, prayed for people, who saw people healed. And for, for Pentecostals and, and, and many Christians, uh, we see ourselves as, in a sense, continuing that, that ministry of Jesus. And what we do, hopefully, see within Pentecostal churches is a, a growing emphasis and, and, and recognition that it's not my power or my faith that, that heals. Certainly, uh, faith is involved. But Healing is a signpost of God's manifest grace, and uh, I hope that that is the message about healing that comes through again and again. Uh, there's no guarantee that someone will be, and you know, everyone will will be healed, and that's why we don't see the hospitals emptied. Uh, but we do believe, as as Pentecostals, that healing is 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 part of the work of God. It has throughout history. And so we do pray uh, for people to be healed. Uh, if they don't get healed, it doesn't mean that there's anything wrong with that person. It doesn't mean, you know, it's it's just one of the mysteries of life, I guess we, you could say. Uh, but we do pray in, in the hope and in faith that uh, God would heal that person. And Dr. Mark Jennings, Elle mentioned before um, prosperity gospel, not just the health, but the wealth too. This is prominent in the US, but you point out distinctly different in Australia. You, you have this term, the uh, pastorpreneur. Yeah, so the pastorpreneur has emerged in, in United States evangelicalism, and it's part of the neoliberal approach to, to kind of responsabilization of everything. So the pastorpreneur is, is typically a very um, charismatic figure in every sense of that word typically a male and and often someone who who preaches and practices the idea that we need to take great risk for the kingdom of God, uh, giving up secure employment in order to build these enormous churches. And Pentecostalism, when it started in Australia, you know, it was mainly started by women. And a lot of the Pentecostal churches were small and there was a particular kind of church approach to church governance. 
which was very different from the kind of the mega church model, which really come in uh, in Australia um, probably towards the the end of the seventies. And that's much more driven by the central dominant charismatic figure who makes uh, a lot of the decisions in in a kind of uh, an Episcopal approach to to church government. This can be a kind of a a pastorpreneur figure. Um, Marion Maddox, an Australian sociologist, talks about this new approach to church, which is to kind of mirror the success of some of the bigger churches like Hillsong and Planet Shakers and the, these churches that are enormous, which are led by these, often by these pastor-premier figures. Um, and so even when the churches are really small, they they build in some of these techniques and approaches uh, in the hope of, of becoming like Hillsong-like Planet Shakers um, and often employ these kinds of um, these pastorpreneur figures who who talk about this kind of idea of entrepreneurial risk for the kingdom of God, giving up secure employment for the kingdom of God, in and and God will bless will bless that with that kind of obedience, that kind of risk with growth. And you know sometimes I guess that happens, but you know, I guess often it doesn't happen. Churches don't have the the magic beans that make them huge. And Jackie Gray, in the mind of so many. At the centre of this conversation will be the televangelist in America, so many of whom have, you know, covered themselves in shame or fraud because of misdeeds or, and, and so forth and showered themselves in the wealth of, of donations. What's your message to, to, to people who have that view of this type of Christianity? My message would be that... Pentecostalism is very diverse, and please don't judge all Pentecostals by uh, some of these televangelists in in the United States. Uh, I think, for to be honest, for most Pentecostals in in, in Australia, we're a very humble bunch. We're, uh, as Elle has highlighted, uh, Pentecostals primarily come from the poor and disadvantaged, and and certainly globally. And so, it's not about trying to. Um, con money out of people, but actually to, to live a simple faith that we honour Jesus through our lives. And our hope, our goal, our aspiration is to be like Jesus. Uh, and Jesus was not a, a superstar. He was someone who was rejected and, and despised at, at times. And, and I hope that for people who are learning about Pentecostalism through this program, that uh, they will begin to see that there's a whole array of different elements of and, and styles within Pentecostalism, but that the majority are just the, the humble folk who uh, are trying to, to live well. And, and some of them, of course, they might aspire towards increasing their social situation. Uh, if you're poor, uh, you want to see your family, you want to see your children get an education. You want to see your children uh, increase in, in, in opportunity. And so, of course, that then can sometimes be misunderstood or sometimes people like that can be preyed upon uh, by some kind of prosperity gospel. But I think for the majority, the the emphasis on Jesus is, I think, probably what we would want to be known as more than a American televangelist. And last word before we get to the quiz, El Hardy, your your book Beyond Belief, How Pentecostal Christianity is Taking Over the World. Is there actually a future that, you know, sees this traditionally smaller part of Christianity muscling into the space that 
you know, the global Roman Catholic Church has, for example. Yeah, I mean, look, I think people just don't understand, you know, in, in the West particularly, and, you know, my kind of people, like people working in sort of secular newsrooms and things like that, just don't understand that this movement is happening, you know, and, and that it's happened very quickly and that it's certainly going to be here for a long time. And and we're seeing its influence really spread now for, for better and for worse. And, and I think it's really worthwhile, you know, not, not dismissing this. I, th- I think um, New Atheist Movement, which I, I was part of for a time, probably did a lot of damage just sort of, uh, you know, assuming that anyone that, that might believe in miracles and, and the Holy Spirit is, is, a, is a dupe or a crook. Um, that's certainly not the case. It's worth understanding it. It's worth understanding the reasons why people are leaving the Catholic Church and, and other denominations in droves to go to it. And it's worth understanding some of the more dangerous doctrines like spiritual warfare and Seven Mountains Mandate, which I've written about in the book, which I think are fairly dangerous um, expressions that that we're starting to see emerge and take on some of a a more political edge, which I think is in many parts of the world is is showing up in, in some pretty bad ways. Well, the warfare of the quiz is up next on RN God Forbid. Yes, it's Wits End, the God Forbid quiz. As always, we begin with the buzzers. And Mark Jennings has a book coming out on the experience of LGBT plus people in Pentecostal churches. And he's thinking of dedicating it to Bob Catter. Test your buzzer. People are entitled to their sexual proclivities. (laughs) (laughs) Meanwhile, we have Elle Hardy, who's a journalist. Her book on Pentecostalism, Beyond Belief, has been subject to harsh criticism in America. And this is it. That was just fake news. Donald Trump, fake news. And Reverend Professor Jacqueline Gray, who attends a Pentecostal church in Sydney, they play modern Christian pop music because it attracts young people far more effectively than this song, which hasn't made it into the Christian charts for many years. Test your buzzer. (laughs) It's a real toe-tapper, that one. (laughs) Question, true or false, the Hillsong worship anthem entitled Shout to the Lord appears in a Church of Scotland hymn book? That can't be right. People are entitled to their sexual proclivities. True. Correct. (laughs) Well done, Mark. (laughs) Good on you, Mark. (laughs) The fourth edition of the hymnary was published in 2005 and it lists Darlene Check's international hit as hymn number 531. One of the better ones. Next question. Uh... The Whitsundays are a group of islands of Queensland's Great Barrier Reef, the Whitsundays. Why might Pentecostals find them a particularly attractive tourist destination? People are entitled to their sexual proclivities. Um, Whitsunday is, is Pentecost Sunday. Yes. Well done again, Mark. Whitsunday or Whitsun in some English-speaking countries is another name for the Christian day of Pentecost. Question. What's a born-again Muslim... That was just fake news. Someone that goes to the Nasfat Mosque in Nigeria? Yes. What happens there? They are a, 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 a traditional, some, somewhat of a traditional Muslim mosque that, that's starting to incorporate some Pentecostal practices into their services, including having mosque on Sundays to try and stem the tide of believers who are flocking over to the Pentecostal churches. Extraordinary. Next question. The term Pentecostal is derived from Pentecost, a Christian event that commemorates the descent of the Holy Spirit upon the followers of Jesus. But what Jewish holiday is Pentecost related to and what does it commemorate? That was just fake news. Is that Passover? 
No, it's Shavuot, and it commemorates the giving of the Ten Commandments to Moses at Mount Sinai. Now, next question. Some Pentecostals believe in biblical infallibility. Others believe in biblical inerrancy. What's the difference? That's a very tough question. Yeah. <laughs> I'm leaving this into the academics. <laughs> Will you give it a go, Jackie? Uh, yeah, I can give it a go. So um, biblical infallibility essentially refers to the fact that uh, the Bible is, is true in all that it teaches regarding salvation. Uh, and inerrancy generally refers to that, that the Bible is, is true in all things often uh, is how it's understood. I don't know if that's right, but it sounds very convincing. <laughs> <laughs> and on that note, we have reached the end of God forbid, but goodness, what entertaining and informative guests. Thank you all three. El Hardy, uh, Aussie journo in the US. Her work appears in periodicals as diverse as The Times of London and Penthouse magazine. Don't want to get those articles confused. Her book, Beyond Belief, How Pentecostal Christianity is Taking Over the World. Thank you, Elle. Thanks for having me. Also, Dr Mark Jennings, a senior lecturer in religious studies at Perth's Wollaston Theological College. Look out for his book this year entitled Happy LGBTQ Plus Experiences of Australian Pentecostal Charismatic Christianity. And spoiler alert, not everyone's happy, apparently. Uh, Reverend Mark, thank you very much. Yes, a very unreverend, Mark, but yes, thank you. It's, it's great to be here. <laughs> and Reverend Professor Jacqueline Gray, Professor of Biblical Studies at Alpha Crucis College in Sydney, four books, multiple chapters, another book on the way, including Them, Us and Me, How the Old Testament Speaks to People Today. Uh, Jackie, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. It's been a delight. And now I know the difference between inerrancy and infallibility. <laughs> and with that, we have reached the end of God Forbid. Uh, you can subscribe to the podcast on the ABC Listen app. You can email me at godforbid at abc.net.au. I'm James Carlton. Until next week, remember to be good. This has been God Forbid. Listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio, and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.